Good morning. Good morning. It is a pleasure to be with you. Um, my name is Christian. I'm one of the pastors and elders here. I get to open up God's word with us this morning. We are concluding. It's kind of bittersweet. We are concluding our series on the Sermon on the Mount. For the last four months, since the first Sunday in November, we started by reading Matthew 5, 6, and 7. And now this morning, we're in the last part of this masterful sermon of Jesus. And I'll be honest, I've taught God's word for many years, many years here at Cornerstone. I don't know if there's ever been a series that we've done that, um, that has intimidated me more, but yet I, that I've just wanted to relish. Just, I'm so, I'm glad that we have gotten to spend time in this masterful sermon. And again, what we're going to look at here in the end of the Sermon on the Mount, in many ways it echoes the words of that song that we just sang. Jesus is a firm foundation. He will not fail. And I don't mean in any way to contradict the words that we just sang, but I do want you to think carefully. When you, when you sang those words, if you sang with us, which I hope you do, it's a beautiful thing we get to do. When you sang those words, are they true for you. Christ is a firm foundation, but is he truly the foundation of your life? Are you sure? That's what we've been seeing in this last part of the Sermon on the Mount. Again, we started from the very beginning saying that the main point of this sermon is that Jesus is laying out for us what it means to live as citizens of his kingdom among the kingdoms of this world, to be this distinct set-apart group of people who live differently in this world. And yet here in the end, in the end of Matthew chapter 7, if you have your Bibles, you can go ahead and open up there. We'll be starting in verse 21 this morning. Last week we started in verse 13 where Jesus very clearly says there's two gates that lead to two paths. One leads to life, the other leads to destruction, and that's it. The stakes are high. Have you entered through that narrow gate that is Jesus himself? Are you certain? Are you following him down the hard path that leads to life? Because we also saw last week that there are false prophets whose whole purpose is to confuse this to lead us down wrong directions. And perhaps, as we'll see this morning even more, an even greater, than, greater danger than false prophets is our own ability to deceive ourselves. So we're gonna pick up starting in verse 21. So if you have your Bible open or you wanna have a Bible along or just follow along on the screens, if you are able to, would you stand with me as we read Matthew chapter seven, verses 21 through the end of the chapter. These are the words of our Lord. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. 
And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell and great was the fall of it. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowd were astonished at his teaching. For he was teaching as them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. Father in heaven, would you give us eyes to see and ears to hear, hearts to know you and love you and follow you through your word. I ask this in your name. Amen. I don't know about you, between the passage we looked at last week and this week, it is very clear that Jesus is creating tension in this passage, is it not? There's a lot of tension, at least for those of us that are paying attention to Jesus' words and taking them seriously. And I guess I would start out by saying this. If there's one thing that I think most of us have in common is that when we encounter tense situations, tense conversations, tense relationships, we want a way out, don't we? We look for like a pressure release valve, some way to, to ease the tension. Even, even I would say, if the way to release the tension is by just strong arming the situation, bullying our way out of the tension that we feel. We will go to great lengths to avoid tension, right? Some of you wake up long before the sun wake up, wakes up so that you can drive to work without the tension of traffic. Amen, I heard an amen on that. Maybe think about this. How many have ever dealt with the tension of waiting to hear back on test results from your doctor? Maybe it hangs over you all weekend or for however many days it is. It's always running in the back of my mind. What are we going to do? What's gonna, what's, what are we going to have to find out? But you have to wait in a situation like that, right? You have to wait even though it's hard. You can't just release the tension yourself. You have to endure it because it's really important to find out what's going on inside of you. Especially if you can clearly see that there's something wrong. You don't want to ignore it in that situation, even though maybe you might want to. You know that you shouldn't. It's worthwhile to endure the tension because you need to know the reality of what's going on so that you know the way forward. Good news or bad news, how do we proceed from here? And I would say in a very similar way, that's what Jesus is doing by creating tension here at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. Even though this is hard, as I've wrestled with these passages, I feel that tension in my own soul. But rather than running from it, let's embrace it. Let's sit here before our Lord and let him do his work in our hearts, even though it's uncomfortable, because we need to embrace this tension. Because good news or bad news, we need to know the way forward. The stakes are too high. Are you truly a citizen of God's kingdom? Are you truly a follower of Jesus? Jesus says here at the end, don't presume that because you hear what I say that you're with me. What are you doing with my words? Do you, like we talked about last week, do you have a faith that follows Jesus? Are you confident that you know him and that he knows you? I wanna take you through this passage, even acknowledging that tension 
Because I think Jesus has a very good purpose. He's not just trying to abuse us emotionally. He is not trying to build such an angst in us that we become followers of Jesus who are never quite sure if we're doing enough. Always insecure in our salvation. But he is warning us on the flip side, be aware of your ability, your susceptibility to deceive yourself. Be aware that you will be the easiest person for yourself to trick. What Jesus is doing here at the end of the Sermon on the Mount is he's trying to do two things for very good reasons. Number one, he wants to destabilize false confidence that we are truly followers of Jesus. Not just to leave us feeling unstable, but instead to point us to true stability. What is a sure foundation to base our confidence that we are God's people upon? He has a good purpose for this. He wants us to be sure, to be certain, certain that we are his followers. So embrace this with me because even if for some of you, this process means first that Jesus needs to help you see that you're not who you think you are. That you haven't truly been a follower of him up to this point. That's a good thing because that means you can begin today. For all of us, I would say, don't run from this. This is a good and normal part of our discipleship. We're going to see this throughout this passage. We can see it throughout the rest of the New Testament. But let's jump into it. Because again, I think part of the genius of what Jesus is doing here at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, or through the whole sermon, is the way that he directs and focuses our attention on different groups, right? At the very beginning, at the beginning of the Beatitudes, Jesus speaks more generally. Blessed are those, a more general, nondescript group of people that he calls the poor in spirit, the merciful, the peacemakers, and so forth. Blessed are they, right? But then there's a shift at the very end of the Beatitudes, where he says, not just blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, but he says, blessed are you when people persecute you on my sake. He turns the focus from a general they to a y'all, very specifically a y'all. And then he says, y'all, as citizens of my kingdom, y'all are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. You are called to live differently. Remember, we saw that in chapter 5, verse 1. He's speaking to his disciples, calling them to live differently. And then throughout the sermon, he explains what that difference is meant to look like. In chapter 6, y'all, as citizens of my kingdom, don't be like them. Those hypocrites who do the right things, but they do it for people's approval. Or like the Gentiles who think that their gods will hear them because they say the right combinations of words the right number of times. That's not what your father's like. He warns us, as we saw in chapter 7, watch out for those false prophets who would lead you in a wrong direction. But then here at the very end, it's as though he comes to it and speaks to all of us as his listeners. Both his disciples and those in the crowd that had gathered around to hear him. And he says, just because I keep talking about y'all, do not assume that you are part of the y'all that I'm talking about. Just because you can hear my words. Not everyone, again, look at verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom. As a matter of fact, he says, many will say to me, we did these big things for you. And I will say, I never knew you. What's Jesus' point? Don't deceive yourself. Examine yourself. Paul talks about this in 2 Corinthians 13 when he says, examine yourself to see if you are of the faith. Examine, test, make sure 
This is a normal part of our discipleship. Don't put your confidence that you are a part of Jesus's kingdom anywhere other than where Jesus tells you to put that confidence. And what we will see in this passage is that there is a very clear place where Jesus says we should root our confidence. Look again at verse 21. In these verses, 21 to 23, Jesus is setting for, up for us two false sources of confidence. We touched on this briefly last week, and I want to come back to it this morning. In verse 21, the first kind of group he goes after, he says, this is a wrong foundation, is what we might just call just simple lip service. Just saying Jesus is Lord. Just saying Jesus is my Lord and Savior. Not everyone who says that, he says, will enter the kingdom. In a very similar parallel passage in the book of Luke, chapter 6, right before Jesus in Luke's gospel gives this parable of the wise and foolish builders, he starts and he says this, why call me Lord, Lord, if you're not going to do what I say? It, it's empty. It doesn't mean anything. It's just, it's just words. James goes even further in his, his letter. The, the letter of James in many ways is written for the entire purpose of doing what Jesus is doing here. These are false confidences. This is the place to find true confidence. And he says, if all you have is just the words that you say, or even just the bare, solitary belief that God exists, that shouldn't put you on very clear standing. Look what James says. You believe that God's one. You do well. Guess what group that puts you with? Even demons believe that God is one. Even demons believe that the God of the Bible is the one true God. You know why? It is an inescapable reality of their existence. Not only do they believe it, they shudder under the fearful prospect that they stand under the judgment of this God even as they continue in rebellion against him. So what about you? What about you? Mere lip service, words we say or sing or pray, are an insufficient foundation for confidence that we truly are a part of God's kingdom. So that's one side, not just lip service. But on the other side, look what he says in verse 23. On that day, many will say, look, we prophesied in your name. We cast out demons in your name. We did many mighty works in your name. And we pointed at this out last week, right? Jesus never says the things they did were fake. He just says they missed the point. This is people who want to do big things for Jesus and miss Jesus in the process. Big things without a relationship. Does this mean then that as followers of Jesus, it's wrong for us to want to do big things? to want to see God's power on display in remarkable ways, through healing, through deliverance, through miracles? Not at all. It is not wrong to desire those things. As a matter of fact, next week, we're gonna take another Sunday to read through the next section of Matthew, Matthew 8, 9, and 10. And you know what we're gonna see? We're gonna see Jesus do a bunch of the very things that he talks about here in verse 23. Mighty works, miracles, healing, deliverance from demons. And then what happens in chapter 10? He sends his 12 apostles to do the very same things in his name. The very same things in his name. So I would say, no, it is clearly not wrong to desire to do big things for Jesus. Or even to do those things if the Holy Spirit empowers you and gives you the opportunity. But it does mean this. Listen carefully. It does mean that in your desire to do great things for Jesus, be careful not to miss Jesus. 
or you missed the whole point. Don't miss the giver in your fervor to exercise his gifts. Last week I mentioned again, this very group, this second group who do big things and miss Jesus, Judas is the poster child for this group. We're going to see that. He's one of the 12 that Jesus sends out to heal and cast out demons and proclaim that the kingdom of God is at hand, even though we find out at the end he was never truly a part of the very kingdom that he preached. This is a very real possibility. The point, again, doing big things for Jesus isn't the main point. Nor are big things that we do the place, the, the place where we put our confidence. There's even a point later on in the book of Matthew where, where the disciples come back and they say, Lord, even the demons were subject to us in, our na- in, in your name. And Jesus says, don't rejoice in that. Rejoice that your names are written in the book of life. Rejoice that you have a relationship with me. That's where your confidence is placed. So then again, look at verse 21 again. In contrast to the lip service people, In contrast to the big things but miss Jesus people, look what he says in verse 21. The one who will enter the kingdom of God is the one who does the will of my Father in heaven. That's the main thing, to do the will of God. Not just passive wish, resigning, I guess the Lord's will be done, but the active pursuit in our lives. Lord, I want not only for your will to be done, I want to be a doer of it. I want to do the things that you've called me to do. Let's stop and talk about that for a second. Because I think, again, that phrase, the will of God, the will of God, we need to stop and think about it. Because at least in my experience as someone who grew up in the church in this area, most often when I heard people talk about God's will, we often talked about it in the context of decisions we needed to make. Lord, is it your will that I marry this person? Is it your will that I pursue this career? Is it your will that I buy this house or move to this town or something like that, right? And those are important questions to ask. Those are life-shaping decisions. And if you try to make those decisions without any consideration to what God wants, is really foolish, right? And yet at the same time, can we go to a chapter and verse that says, you know, like when I was dating my wife when we were in college and asking God's will for our relationship, I realized very quickly there wasn't a chapter and verse I could turn to that said, Christian, thou shalt marry Jennifer. Those types of decisions, God absolutely can give us clarity on those things, but that clarity typically comes through prayer, through seeking wise counsel from God's word and from others, through then making the wisest decision that we can in the moment and then being faithful to the commitments that we make. But I don't think that's the way that Jesus is talking about God's will here in Matthew 7. You know, sometimes theologians, they'll distinguish between what they call God's secret will and God's revealed will. God's secret will, not that it gets some Easter egg hunt we need to search for, but those things that Scripture doesn't specifically promise to us or command us to do, like to marry a particular person or have a particular job, right? On the other hand, there's God's revealed will. Those things that very clearly in his word, he has promised to us. He has commanded of us. That's more the the idea that Jesus is talking about here. Our attendance, our obedience to what God has clearly called us to do in his word. To his revealed will. Does that make sense? Remember, because 
like he says there in verse 21, this is about entering the kingdom of heaven. And nobody gets into the kingdom of heaven by marrying the right person. Maybe more encouraging to some of you, nobody is kept out of the kingdom of heaven because you married the wrong person either, right? He says, the one who enters the kingdom of heaven is the one who does the will of my Father in heaven. So what is that will that we are called to do? Look a couple verses later in verse 24. What are we to do? Everyone who hears these words of mine and does them will be like the wise man who built his house on the rock. Listen carefully because our familiarity with a passage like this can make us miss the shocking claim that Jesus is making here. Imagine you're a first century Jewish person living in this area, listening to Jesus on that day. You hear him speak like no one you've ever heard before. You hear him say, ultimately, the one who will enter into the good rule of God is the one who does the will of my Father in heaven. And then you hear Jesus say, so therefore that means doing what I say. Whoa, Jesus, did you really just equate your words with God's will? That to obey you is to obey God? Who does Jesus think that he is? He thinks that he is God, very God. He thinks that he is the eternal son of the father. Not just thinks, it is who he is. What he says, God says. So what is the place that Jesus says where we are to found our confidence that we truly are his followers? By hearing and doing what he says. Do you want confidence that you are truly a citizen of God's kingdom? Do you see the life of the kingdom on display in your life? Do you see the blessed life of the kingdom of God that the Sermon on the Mount lays out? Is it a reality in your life? More than the words you say or the prayers you pray. Is your life marked by mercy and peacemaking and forgiveness? Am I repenting of both sinful actions and sinful desires? Do I love my enemies? Do I seek to do to others what I would want them to do to me? Am I seeking to be perfect as my heavenly father is perfect? That's what it means to build your life on a true foundation. The father's will is our sustained active obedience to the words of Jesus our pursuit of the blessed life of the kingdom that he lays out. And like I talked about last week, not the perfection of our, our performance, but like a true pattern of progress in our lives. Can you look at your life, however long you follow Jesus, and look at your life and go, yes, I see clearly, though there is much room yet to grow, I am progressively becoming less like who I was and more like who I follow. That's where Jesus says to root your confidence. The doing of God's will, as Jesus explains here on the Sermon on the Mount, it may be a lot less flashy and impressive than the prophecy and the casting out of demons and the mighty works that they talk about in verse 22. But get this, this life is no less supernatural than those big things. It is not something that we can undertake in our own power, which again, as we saw a couple weeks ago, is why Jesus says, 
ask, keep asking, keep seeking, keep knocking. Your father has everything that you need to bring this life into reality. Come to him and keep coming to him. Hear me, please. Do you want true confidence that when you stand before Jesus on that day when he brings the kingdom in its fullness, that he will look at you and see you and know you? Here's how. Hear the words of Jesus and do them. Hear the words of Jesus and do them. In many ways, this reminds me of a song that I remember hearing growing up. Maybe you guys sing this as well. Trust and obey. Trust and obey, for there's no other way to what? To be happy in Jesus. Or I guess happy kind of feels like a, like a, a not a big enough word. To be confident, secure in Jesus, than to trust him and obey him. Trust what he says, do it. And in so doing, your trust will grow as your obedience grows. Amen? Or another song that was very similar. Tis so sweet to trust in Jesus. I love the chorus there. Jesus, Jesus. How I trust him, how I have proved him over and over. I have trusted him and in so doing found him to be trustworthy. But I love the way that chorus ends, if you're familiar with it. Jesus, precious Jesus. Oh, for grace to trust him even more. Grace to trust him more. Not perfection, but progress. I've learned to trust Jesus. I'm so glad I've learned to trust Jesus, but there is still room to go. Jesus, would you give me? I'm asking and seeking and knocking for grace to trust you even more. What does it look like to trust and obey Jesus, to hear and do what he says? Let me walk through just a couple examples as we continue. Think about back in chapter 5, verse 44, where Jesus makes this short statement but incredibly difficult statement. I say to you, love your enemies. Or earlier when he says, someone strikes you on one cheek, turn to him the other. Wants to take your cloak, give him your tunic as well. What does it mean to hear and do? Well, I would say it starts with just simply taking the time to hear, think and recognize and go, Jesus, I hear what you say. I recognize it and I want to trust that that is a good way for me to live. That loving my enemies, turning the other cheek is good. I want to trust that is the revealed will of God for me as a follower of Jesus. But having heard it and trusted, acknowledge that it's good. I'm asking you, Father in heaven, please give me the grace, the courage that I need to put this into practice. When people mistreat me, wrong me, slander me, just exclude me. Help me not just to hear that it's good to love my enemies or shout an amen to loving my enemies, but to actually do it. And why do I want to do this? Because I want to believe what Jesus says in that same passage, that we may be called sons of our Father in heaven, sons and daughters of God. Why? Because he's the ultimate lover of enemies. He loved us while we were his enemies. And if you want confidence that you truly are his son or his daughter, it comes as you see that same love that God has shown you displayed to those around you. Do you see that? When Jesus talks in chapter 6 about not doing your acts of righteousness for others to see you, 
when I'm tempted to do good things for the wrong reasons, so people see me, so that my ego gets padded or my reputation gets enhanced. I want to stop and start by saying, Father, I believe that it is good to seek reward from you, not from people. And so even if in the things that I'm doing, no one sees it or thanks me for it, I want to seek your reward. I believe it's your will that I seek your approval more than people's approval. And even, like we talked about, even if people do see me, even if people do see the things that I do, you say that your will as one of your followers is to let my light shine before people so that even when they see my good deeds, the end result is not that they praise me, but they praise you. That is your will. Lord, I want to live my life in such a way that you are exalted, you are honored, so that way my confidence that I truly am one of your children is because I see not perfection, but a clear, growing pattern in my life that your kingdom and your righteousness really is what I'm seeking first. Do you see what Jesus is saying to us? He's calling us at this point, at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, reflect back on everything that I've said. Reflect back on everything that you have read and heard and thought about from this sermon over the last four months. What are you doing with it? What do you need to do with it? In the end, that's the true difference between the wise builder and the foolish builder. They both hear the same thing. One is truly a citizen of the kingdom of God. The other one may only think that they are. One may say, Lord, Lord, but the other one actually lives like Jesus is Lord. Both hear the same thing. The difference is what they did with it. So which are you? Are you confident in your answer to that question? On what do you base your confidence? Jesus, again, here's where we need to stop for a second and consider this. Because anytime that we start to think about this idea of doing things, especially for those like us, most of us who've come from like a tradition, like a Protestant Reformation tradition, we recognize one of the big things that the reformers contended for back in the 1500s was that our salvation is not based upon our works, but upon the grace of God. But for the last 500 years, then we've also struggled to understand, okay, but we've got to do something, right? Like, what is the relationship between our faith and our works? And we can hear words like this from Jesus and say, is it just about if I do enough good stuff, then I'll be sure? Jesus is not teaching us this idea of works righteousness, that our salvation or our right standing before God is based upon how much good stuff we do or that our good deeds outweigh our bad deeds. That's not what he's saying. But he's also, on the same token, not arguing for, again, that empty version of salvation by faith that just says all you need are words and nothing else. We are saved by faith, not works. Clearly, one of the clearest passages on that is here in Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. This is one of the, of the passages that the Reformation was built on. For by grace, God's undeserved kindness, because he wanted to be kind to us, we have been saved. Through faith, trust in Jesus. This is not our own doing. Again, verse 9. Our salvation is not a result of our works. Amen? But if you stop at verse 9, you miss the beauty of verse 10. We are not saved as a result of works, but we are saved for good works. God has prepared them for us that we should walk in them. Do you see that? Faith 
follows Jesus. Faith puts into practice the lifestyle that he modeled for us. Another passage that illustrates this really clearly, this is one I feel like I come back to weekly. Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 14 says this. Again, he starts with the idea of the grace, the kindness of God that's not based upon what you and I deserve, but what God desires. The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. God, we are saved by grace. Amen? But keep going. The same grace that saves us also trains us. God's grace trains us to renounce. A big fancy word for say no to. Hear Nancy Reagan's voice in your head. Just say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. We're waiting for the appearing of the great glory of Jesus, who again, he came to redeem us by grace, to purify us from our sins by grace. But what's the result of that grace? We become people who are zealous, passionate for good works. Do you see that in your life? A growing zeal, passion to live and love like Jesus does. Do you see a growing renunciation, saying no to hatred and lust and self-righteousness and hypocrisy? If not, if there is no evidence, like Titus 2 talks about here, if there is no evidence in your life that God's grace is training you in these ways, why should you be confident that God's grace has saved you? One more passage I want to take you to on this idea. First John, like the book of James, First John was written almost entirely for this purpose, to expose false confidence and to strengthen true confidence. Look what John, one of the 12, said about the same idea. By this we know that we have come to know him, to truly know Jesus. If... We keep his commandments. But whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar. And the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know. God wants us to know, to be sure, to be confident. How can we be confident that we are in Jesus? Whoever says that he abides, lives, remains in Jesus, ought to walk in the same way in which Jesus walked. Do you see that in your life? Are you tired of me asking you that question yet? You check in your walk, Christian, seriously, wrap this thing up. This is uncomfortable. Does this matter to you? See, one of the great dangers, frustrations, the hard things about preaching a passage like this is that sometimes the people who need the most conviction and challenging by a, passion, a passage like this, you're honestly too preoccupied. You're chasing butterflies in your head right now. You're checking, I don't know, football's over, basketball doesn't matter yet. So I don't know what sports car stories you're scoring, but your mind's elsewhere. Some of you are too lulled by your own apathy to the things of God to even hear the warning that Jesus is bringing in this passage. But then on the other side, the, the, the flip side, the danger is that those who are truly legitimately trying to walk with Jesus can feel even more burdened by a passage like this. 
Because you're already aware of that poverty of spirit that Jesus starts out with. I'm already aware that I don't measure up. I'm already hungering and thirsting for this righteousness that Jesus talks about. And this passage just makes me even hungrier. So let me talk to both of those groups for just a second here. If you recognize on the one hand that rather than growing zeal for the things of God, there is a growing apathy, coldness, numbness, in your heart, if you recognize that you've become much more of a hearer than a doer of Jesus' words, or maybe that you were never really a doer, come to Jesus. Ask and seek and knock. Ask God to break through the hardness in your heart, the calluses in your soul, to renew or perhaps for the first time give you a passion to follow Jesus, to hear and do what he says. If you're in that other group who you're even more burdened, you're not, you look at your life and you go, I'm not so apathetic, but I am weary. I am discouraged. I am trying to hear and do what Jesus said, but I see the gaps in my life. Christian, I heard what you said. We're not supposed to expect perfection in this life, but I'm honestly not seeing as much progress as I want to see either. Gosh, I would say the same thing to you, though. Come to Jesus. Ask him. Seek, knock. Remember, the same Jesus who speaks these hard words here in the Sermon on the Mount is also the one a few chapters later in Matthew 11 who says this, if you're weary, if you're weighed down in burden, come to me. Come to me. I want to give you rest. I want to refresh your soul. I'm not here to weigh you down. But he does use that idea of take my yoke upon you. That word yoke is often used to refer to like a king's authority over his people or, or a rabbi's authority over his disciples. So Jesus is clearly saying, I am your master. I am your Lord. And you are to treat me as such. You are to obey what I say. But my purpose in calling you to follow and obey me is to give you rest to refresh your soul. Jesus' purpose also is not just to tell us what to do and tell us to go do it, but what we're going to continue to see through the book of Matthew is that Jesus himself is the model of the very life he calls us to live. He doesn't just say, do what I say. He says, come, watch what I do. Look at the way that I live. I have everything that you need to join me in this path. Apprentice, with me, follow me in this. Well, again, we'll see that very clearly next week as we get into the next section of Matthew. But again, before we wrap up, it's so, so hard to wrap up this message, this whole sermon. But before we wrap up our time in the Sermon on the, on the Mount, let me just remind of you, each of us need to examine ourselves carefully. Is the life of the kingdom that Jesus talks about here in the Sermon on the Mount, this blessed life, is it the life that you and I are living? Is it truly the foundation that our life is built upon? Because as Jesus makes clear, there is a storm coming. And we all must face that storm. And whatever foundation you think that your life has been built upon, the proof is in the storm. Look again, the same rain and floods and winds beat on both houses. And it was only after the storm had passed that you see the aftermath. 
One house stands, the other swept away. And it's only at that moment that you see clearly who the wise builder was and who the foolish builder was. Maybe it's also the first moment that those builders themselves went, I sure thought I was on the right foundation. It's only then that you see the clarity of it. I know mean, we've been going for a while, but stick with me because this last thing I want to walk you through is really important. There's kind of two main ways that we can look at this storm idea that Jesus is talking about here at the end. The wind, the waves, the, or the, the rain, the floods. One view is that the storm that Jesus is talking about is just, I guess you could say, the normal trials and struggles of our lives. Just the, the wear and tear of living in a broken world like we sang about earlier. The, the hardships that even people might bring upon us in our lives. And in one sense, that, that makes sense, right? As Christians, we know that we are, we are not spared from many of the same hardships that the world around us, and, and we, we share in those things. We, we wrestle with some of the same hardships and struggles and trials. But again, hopefully, the way that we deal with those struggles and trials and hardships is what reveals the difference. That we are trusting in God, that he's with us, that he cares, that he can lead us through it. Hopefully there is a difference in that way. But, so that's one, that the storms that Jesus is talking about here is about just the normal wear and tear struggles of life. The other way of looking at it is that Jesus is not just talking about little storms. He's talking about the big capital S storm. The ultimate, I guess you could say final judgment. When everyone will stand before him and he will give the decisive verdict, I never knew you or well done, my good and faithful servant. And within this whole section of Matthew 7, I think... That, that final destination judgment is very clearly on Jesus' mind, right? In verses 13 and 14, when he talks about the two gates and paths, it's not just about what the gates look like or where the paths go, but he, he's saying, what's the ultimate destination? One leads to life, the other leads to destruction. When he talks about false prophets, he doesn't just say, watch out for them, they're bad. He says, every tree that bears bad fruit, what happens to it? It gets cut down and thrown into the fire. That sounds pretty final to me, doesn't it? When he talks about on that day, when it's time for God's people to enter into the kingdom, many will say, Lord, Lord, and I'll say, I never knew you. And then there's ultimate judgment throughout this, this conclusion of the Sermon on the Mount. And that's what leads me to believe that the storm that Jesus is talking about here in verses 24 through 27, the main idea is final judgment, is the fact that on one day, at one day, all of us will stand before Jesus and he himself will make it clear who truly knew him and who only thought they did. So think about it with me from that vantage point for a moment. How will you and I fare on that day? Of all the things that we are building with our lives, what will remain after that storm? What will that reveal about how wisely we lived this life? That's the big ultimate question that Jesus is putting before us in these words. But I also think that first perspective has some, some really helpful parts to it as well. That idea that the storms are talking about just the, the, the wear and tear struggles of life. Because think about it this way. If you want to get some idea of how you will fare during the ultimate storm, Pay careful attention to the way that you handle the smaller storms that you encounter in this life. Like think about that. In times of struggle, difficulty, suffering, how have you responded? 
Is your knee jerk to just rely on your own abilities to find a way out? Some way strong arm the situation to gain the upper hand. On the other hand, have you tended to just fixate solely on what others have done to you and how you feel trapped by that? To despair and lose hope. Or on the other hand, have you entrusted yourself to God in the midst of these smaller storms? Trusted that he sees you, that he knows you, that he cares about you. Have you entrusted yourself to his people, seeking wisdom and and support and help and prayer from them? Have you, even in the midst of suffering that others might be causing to you, have you sought ways to love and bless even your enemies? Has it maybe been a little bit of a mixture of all of the above? Understand this. The smaller storms that we encounter in this life are some of the most important training grounds for our life as followers of Jesus. Again, I mentioned this before, but look at James chapter 1. He says this, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet various trials. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. God is building something in you through it. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. God is seeking to train us, to test us, to prepare us, to shape our character, to grow our faith through these smaller storms that we encounter in this life. And I would say he grows and shapes and trains us even when we handle them poorly. Even when we fail. When we handle trials poorly, when we despair, when we lash out in anger, we learn through that process to confess, to repent. We learn humility. We learn how much we still need Jesus, right? I feel like that is something that I find myself saying to my kids so regularly. I'm so sorry for the way I lashed out in anger. I'm so sorry the way I walked into the room and without any awareness felt like I knew the situation that was going on. Basically what you just saw was how much your dad still needs Jesus. That humility. Think about the way Peter says something very similar. Again, Think about who's writing this. This is Peter, one of the 12, the denier. The dude who thought the best course of action was to cut a dude's ear off to defend Jesus, right? Like if we know of anyone who was trained through failure, it's him. And listen to what it says. He says, you can rejoice because now, even now for a little while, you've been grieved by various trials. But what's the end result? The tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, though it perishes by, though it's tested by fire, may f- be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus. The smaller storm that God brings into our lives are the proving ground, the improving ground for our faith and our character. Do you see that in your life? Whether through good times or bad times, your father is guiding and training you and molding you more into the image of Jesus. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 3, that's the the Holy Spirit's role in our lives. To transform us, he says, not all at once, but from one degree of glory to another into the image of Jesus. That's where we root our confidence. So let me finish with this. What storms are you facing in your life right now? What smaller trials, hardships, even though they don't feel small, it's not the ultimate day of the Lord judgment. What are those trials revealing about the foundation that your life is built upon? 
Do you see that tested genuineness in your faith? Do you see a faith that follows Jesus even in the midst of hardship? On that day when you stand before Jesus, do you have confidence that he will see you and know you? That your faith, like Paul, Peter says here, may be found to result in praise and honor and glory at the revelation of Jesus. All of those questions are really wrapped up in this. How are you hearing and doing what Jesus says? What are you doing with what you've heard? How are you putting it into practice? That's what it means to build your life on Jesus. Amen? Would you pray with me? And then we're going to sing one more song together. <sighs> Jesus, thank you for patiently, graciously walking us through this sermon of the last few months as a church family. We may be finished teaching through this, but we are not finished hearing and doing what you say. Father, I pray for myself, for my whole church family in which I get to serve as one of the shepherds. Don't let us settle for fake confidence. Don't let us settle for lip service or just even to live off the big things we did for you decades ago when we were on fire for you. Lord, we want true confidence that comes from an ongoing pattern of progress and transformation in our lives that not only has your grace saved us, but it is training us. We want to be people purchased by you, Lord Jesus, purified and redeemed by you, who are zealous for good works. We might be hearers and doers of your word so that those around us may see our lives, glorify you, our Father in heaven. That's what it means to be citizens of your kingdom. Would you do that by your grace in our lives? We ask in Jesus' name, amen.